To get more out of this podcast, head over to Nebula, the creator-owned streaming service where you can get more episodes ad-free and earlier than everybody else, plus bonus content and exclusive series by myself and more than 130 other top-tier educational creators, many of whom I've interviewed on this podcast. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. You can sign up for Nebula by clicking on the link in the description or go to nebula.tv slash conversations with Joe. It not only helps support the podcast, it furthers our mission of building a platform that focuses on content that matters. You know those moments when you kind of need somebody to pinch you so you can be sure that what's happening is real? Those moments when you think to yourself, is this really my life? <laughs> I mean, the good version of that feeling, not the one you get, you know, in the middle of the day on a Wednesday and your boss is asking for another TPS report. I'm talking about the good kind. Those happen way too rarely, don't they? Well, that happened to me this last week when I was recording this podcast. I was in the middle of recording the interview that you're about to hear, and I'm still pretty unconfident in my interviewing skills. It's still a very new thing to me, and it's a bit of an art. You know, you need to let it be organic. You need to let it flow like a conversation, but you also have a limited amount of time, but you want to make sure and cover certain topics, but you need to listen and react, and you're always looking ahead to, you know, what you need to ask next. It's a challenge for anybody, but especially a challenge for a guy like me who spends most of his time talking to a camera in an empty room. So I'm in the middle of keeping all these spinning plates going, and it hits me that the person I'm talking to, and even crazier who's talking back to me, is Peter Beck. Now, maybe that name doesn't ring a bell for you, but if you follow my channel, it should. Peter Beck is a co-founder and CEO of Rocket Lab. It's a private space launch company based out of New Zealand, and it's the only private company outside of SpaceX that's put a satellite in orbit. Blue Origin hasn't even reached orbit yet, but these guys have. Peter Beck is one of the top names in the space launch business in the world. And he's talking to me. <laughs> like, seriously, whose life did I just step into here? So today I'm releasing a video about Rocket Lab on the YouTube channel, and Peter and his team were incredibly helpful. They shared videos and images with me, and obviously recorded this interview with me, and I really want to thank them for their help. Rocket Lab is an incredibly interesting company that is the epitome of the new space movement, you know, the, the new paradigm of private commercial space development. And what's exciting about what we're seeing in private spaceflight right now is, is there's a niching down of services. And the reason that's exciting is because that's what a burgeoning industry does. So one of the things I was interested in talking to Peter about was, you know, how they chose this niche, how they plan to service it. And it's, it's really interesting stuff, how they came to those decisions. So if you want to know more about Rocket Lab, uh, you can check out their website, rocketlabusa.com. Obviously, you can check out my video on Rocket Lab on the YouTube channel. But I really want to thank, again, Peter Beck for his time and give a shout out to Morgan Bailey for reaching out to me in the first place and setting this whole thing up. So with all that said, please enjoy my conversation with Peter Beck. Well, let's just jump in. Um, go ahead and uh, tell my audience all about you and how you got started and, and how Rocket Lab became a thing. Well, I mean, it's one of those 10-year overnight success stories, isn't it? So, you know, I started the company uh, back in 2006. Yeah. And then in 2009, uh, we became the first private company in the Southern Hemisphere uh, to reach space. And then we did a lot of work for, uh, for, for, for DARPA and Lockheed Martin and, and, and folks um, during that period from 2009 to 2013. We were going to reach the point where uh, it, was, it was feasible to, uh, to go and, and raise the capital uh, for the Electron program, um, we, we we kind of made ourselves made a bit of a name for ourselves in the industry. We delivered uh, a number of really really complex projects, so it just was the right time to to try and raise raise the capital. 
so we raised the capital uh, initially out of, uh, you know, our first investor was uh, Coza Ventures. So it was very important for us that we, we brought on uh, incredibly high caliber um, capital. Mm-hmm. You know, build, building your investment group is, is no different to building an engineering team. You need the absolute best talent. Um, and, you know, that, that meant sometimes we didn't always take the best deal. We took the best talent. Uh, and so we raised out of Coza, then uh, we did another round with Bessemer, uh, and then Data Collective, um, and uh, you know, he, he, here we are today. So is it, is it difficult to raise money in a, in a space that's so kind of burgeoning? Like, you don't, there's not a lot of case studies to go by on that. No, but once again, it's, it's about finding the right investor who understands yeah. the opportunity. Um, and, you know, like, lucky for us, we'd, we'd done some things. So uh, we had some, you know, we had some uh, good credibility and, um, you know, some good stuff to point to. But yeah, look, it was a, still a, still a, um, you know, a massive, uh, you know, leap for, for Kozla to, um, sure. you know, to, to make at the start. Uh, but it was, um, you know, it was, it was, it was well, well justified. There was an intense due diligence process. And, you know, at the end of that process, um, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was, it was a clear result. Yeah. So this is one of those, after 12 years, you're an overnight success kind of things, huh? Yeah, one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I love how overnight successes always take like five or 10 years to achieve. Um, yep, always, always. I was, I was noticing, because I, I was stalking you a little bit and doing a little bit of research before I, I jumped on here, but I saw that you did get started. In, you said 2006, but I had seen 2009, so it was before that, I guess. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It was 2006, yeah. That's also the same time that SpaceX and Blue Origin kind of got their wheels off the ground. So what was going on in the 2000s that got everybody interested in suddenly doing private space flight? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good question. I mean, when I started Rocket Lab, I never heard of SpaceX. I didn't even know it existed. Um, And, uh, you know, there's always always kind of those companies that were kicking around in the Mojave Desert uh, doing doing cool stuff. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I went and visited a lot of those. Uh, and that's sort of one of the reasons you know, I had the inspiration to to start Rocket Lab is what was happening in the Mojave Desert wasn't totally dissimilar to what was happening in my garage at some point. So um, so that that was sort of you know gave me the the incentive to um, you know to begin and also it, the opportunity to um, you know to do what we were doing with the Electron program was always very obvious to me that spacecraft. We're going to follow Moore's law, and we're going to shrink. Mm. And um, you know, large Leo constellations make a lot of sense. So you know, the vision from from day one is is always is always been you know very very solid. So it's just a matter of executing it. And um, yeah, I, I don't know what it was, but um, about that period in time. But um, it, yeah, I I didn't know if maybe there was like a a shift in the industry or if NASA had some program or something that kind of opened up some, some doors. Cause suddenly it was like this thing that never existed. And then suddenly there's a few of them. I think, I think you reach a tipping point with technology and information. Uh, you know, it's probably no different to the aviation industry where it was, was governments and, and large corporations. And then uh, it became much, much more feasible uh, to disseminate that down. Um, you know, it mm-hmm. used to be governments built planes, not companies. And uh, it's the same with, with, space launch vehicles now is is it's no longer governments building space launch vehicles it's companies right that, that's interesting so uh what was your what was your background before this were you always uh like I, I launched rockets in my backyard the little toy rockets and stuff like that was that something you did when you were a kid was it something you always wanted to do 
Yeah, I mean, for me, it's it's always been about the rocket for as far back as I can remember. Yeah. And, um, you know, I remember going outside with, with my father when, I don't know how young I was, but obviously very young, yeah. looking up at the stars and, and him explaining to me that, you know, the first shooting star that I saw that was, was something that was made by humans. And I remember my question to him was, well, are all these other stars in the sky as humans created by humans as well? And there's a no, no, those are suns and they have planets. I'm like, so there's planets out there. Do they have humans on them? And it's like, well, that's not proven either way, <laughs> but maybe, maybe not. And, um, you know, that's what really hooked me on space is that that blew my mind that, um, that there's this, you know, the, the context of the universe and, and our place in it. Yeah. And that, that's kind of where it all started and building rockets at school and, uh, did, did rocket packs and rocket powered bikes and, and, uh, and all, all sorts of, all sorts of stuff that, um, teenagers and mid, mid twenties, uh, tend to think are, are, are rational ideas at that point of their life. And then, um, <laughs> then, uh, then obviously the, the vehicles and, and engines and everything, you know, became much, much more complex. And, um, you know, the, the, the kind of underlying engineering interest is, is also there. It's a fusion of, of that. And also, um, just the, you know, the, the importance of actually trying to achieve what we want to achieve with the Electron program, you know, creating space is, is, a, is a domain that's easily accessed and, uh, you know, the result of, of what can occur when, when you do that. Um, the, the impact um, that you can have on ground, on the ground. That, that always, you know, people always often ask me, you know, what, what gets you up in the morning? And it's, you know, I love building rockets, that's a fact. But actually, what gets me up in the morning is knowing that that spacecraft that we just put on orbit providing weather services to Australia, 20 minutes later is providing weather services to another country with an, with, an, with an, an, you know, another 50 million people in passes over North America for a few hundred million people. And that one little box of electronics actually touches billions of people. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. That's actually really cool. I never really thought about that. It's, it's not a localized thing at all. You, you literally can't not serve the entire world that way. There's, there's no other piece of human built infrastructure that has the ability and the fact to touch and change, you know, people's lives on the ground more so than a spacecraft. There's just not. I love that. That's cool. And what I find interesting about you guys is while we're seeing, you know, uh, the SpaceX and the blue origins going bigger and bigger and bigger mm. and going for reusability, you guys are like, let's just make a really cheap rocket that gets small things in, into space and you're kind of going the other direction. It seems like I saw, I'm probably going to get this wrong, but I think JAXA did the smallest to orbit yep. rocket ever, yep. like last year or something like that. So I think it's interesting that we're kind of, we're kind of going in two separate ways, but mm. both serving its, their individual uh, niches. And I was kind of wondering if you could talk about how you guys decided to go the way that you did. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a race to the big and the race to the small. Right, um, yeah. The best way to describe it in the industry right now. And the race to the big is about human transportation, uh, colonizing other planets and you know and, and other other you know bodies in the universe or in our solar system mm-hmm. um, which are hugely important goals for humanity um, you know that you know landing some people on Mars is, um, is is a huge step forward for us as a species uh, but also a huge step forward uh, for, for us as a species is to be able to build mass space infrastructure uh, to, to serve everybody on on the ground yeah. and people kind of don't realize how reliant they are on space infrastructure. I mean, GPS is the obvious one, but then you, you know, you, you, you guide it home with your GPS 
um, you, you know, GPS nav system. You, you sit inside, turn on the television, it's all coming from, from space. You wonder what the weather's doing outside, it's coming from space. And, and you know, it, it's, it has a huge impact. And if you can create a domain where you can experiment and put in much more of that infrastructure, like the, the, the possibilities are infinite for, you know, the advances for our civilization. Yeah. So um, we kind of view what we're doing here is, is, um, is enabling an industry to, to have a big effect with, you know, to, to everybody down on earth. And I think that's equally as, as, um, as inspiring and also equally as important as, um, as a race to the big stuff. But um, if you look what's happening in the industry, the geosatellite, the big school bus sized spacecraft are static. You know, they're not, they're not growing in, um, in numbers. But conversely, you look at the small, you know, the small spacecraft industry and it's exploding. Um, you know, yeah. it's, 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 it's growth is, is hundreds of percent a year. And, um, you know, that, that's, where all the, that's where all the growth is. And, and you know, people are disaggregating off these large geosynchronous platforms into small constellations. And, you know, the, the real key to all of that happening is the ability to access space. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, every year we, re, we do a sort of a market sum up of all the spacecraft that were launched. And, you know, last year, out of all the spacecraft that were launched and put on orbit, we can fly 62% of them. It's <laughs> pretty so, good market. Yeah. I mean, and look, if we double the size of the rocket, we fly 64% of them. <laughs> so... You know, we, we really got it just the right size. Yeah, I mean, and purposely so. Um, you yeah. know, we, we were very um, we we're very you know purposeful with that. You know, this the class of, the class of payload that, that we thought was going to be the sweet spot, and that's hard to do. You know, four years out because the program's four years four mm. years old, four years out. But um, you know, physics plays an important role. Um, you know, we have a 150 kilogram spacecraft that we can lift, and you can do an awful lot with 150 kilograms. Um, you can. You can do most things, and that's 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 pretty much, you know, proven to be true. If you look at the mass of the mass of the these very large constellations that have been proposed, they're all around around about that mass. Mm. Now, I think it's interesting that uh, I mean, technology. I mean, you look at cell phones; they just get smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm sure satellites have been doing the same thing, and mm-hmm. um, it, I think it is about time that we had something that was, you know, set up to to deliver that kind of payload. That's that's interesting. Um, so let's, let's jump into the, the electron rocket. Mm-hmm. Um, what were some of the engineering challenges to get uh, a small enough, but powerful enough rocket to do all the things that you're doing? Well, I mean, you laughing. So there were clearly a lot of well, <laughs> engineering challenges. I think any, anybody's ever built or built a launch vehicle, um, uh, you know, un- understands this. Um, and unfortunately with a small launch vehicle, not everything scales in the direction you like it to. Mm. Um, so one of the one of the one of the you know if we if we start there you know a pressure transducer is required to measure the pressure of a combustion chamber in a rocket engine. Um, the same pressure transducer is used on a very large engine as a very as as is a very small engine. Mm-hmm. The difference there is that um, the pressure transducer on a large engine represents 0.0001 percent of its mass. The same pressure transducer that that on a small engine represents one percent of its mass. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, so you've got you've got scaling laws up against you that that um, that that make it difficult to start with. So it's it's not easier to build a smaller rocket uh, than a bigger rocket. In fact, I would argue the other way around. I think yeah. it would be you have a lot more latitude um, with a launch, larger launch vehicle than you do a smaller launch vehicle. Um, and then, really, for us, it's it's about building launch cadence and launch frequency. 
So we approached it in a very different way. We said, okay, clean sheet of paper, um, how can we build the most mass-producible, cost-effective, uh, high-performance launch vehicle ever made? So we, we started off with design for manufacturer as a key requirement. And usually the way you build a launch vehicle is you, you get something to orbit and then you figure out how you can make it. That's kind of been the traditional <laughs> approach. Mm. And, um, you know, e even, even with the, the, the very large successful commercial companies right now, you know, that's exactly what you're seeing is, is um, you know, actually finally honing in on what, what is, is the most producible and reliable. So, you know, for us, that was, a, that was from day one. So every engineering, every business decision we made was how can we launch every 72 hours or more? Um, right. and, um, and, you know, that, that drives a lot, of, uh, a lot of challenging things. For example, uh, the, the carbon composite tanks. Um, we're the first to ever fly a fully carbon composite rocket, ever. And it's a common bulkhead, liquid oxygen, uh, carbon composite tank. Uh, never been done before. And, you know, making carbon composites not only cryogenically compatible, but liquid oxygen compatible, doing it with a common bulkhead and, and all of those things uh, was a really challenging and, and intensive R&D program. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we, we, we bit that off. And the reason why we bit that off was um, because now that we're done, we can produce a tank at a, at a cost and a frequency and a performance that you could never approach with a metallic tank. Yeah. Think of a, a metallic tank, you start off with sheets of aluminum, then you roll them, you friction stir weld them, you have to paint them, um, stress relieve them, and all of those processes. We have a giant mandrel where we just make a tank. So um, it's, it's just it's a much, much uh, simplified and, and high performance you know, production environment yeah. uh, to, to be able to do that. So, um, and then there's the, the Rutherford engine is another good example. Um, you know, we, we looked at uh, you know, there's 10 engines per flight. Um, you're launching, you're launching, you're measuring the launch rate in, in days or hours. So that's a lot of engines. Mm. Um, and you know, it's fully 3D printed. All the turbo pumps, all the thrust chambers, injectors, everything's 3D printed in that. Even the even the liquid oxygen and kerosene transfer pipes. Um, are are y'all to this day the only people that do that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's becoming much more popular. Um, okay. We're the only only ones that are flying a 3D printed engine. Um, there's a lot of research programs. But we started that, and when, when 3D printers, metallic 3D printers, were used to make bottle openers and kind of quirky little things yeah. to show it at trade shows, you know. And, um, and We're going to make engines with that. Yeah, we'll, we'll just make a rocket engine with that. You know, yeah, the most well, highly stressed, uh, <laughs> mass-sensitive uh, mass um, right. piece of machinery you can make. Let's just do that. So... Um, so, but the reason why we did that and invested so heavily in that was that we knew if we could pull it off, um, we could produce engines at a performance and a, and a, and a rate that you couldn't do in any other process. I mean, okay. with, with only six printers, we can, we can produce one engine every 24 hours. Um, That's amazing. So, yeah, so, and if we want to double it, we just buy another six printers. So it's a scalable <laughs> um, process. So there's a lot of, a lot of work went in, into that. Um, you know, still to this day, people will look at a lot of the components that we have on that engine and and and, and uh, claim them as being unprintable. Um, but we develop technologies and methods and software to actually actually do that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's funny uh, now. You know, three D printed engine components are pretty much the norm. When we started, it's like that is crazy. Now it's like, oh yeah, yeah, you've got a three D printed injector. You know, it's just standard. Yeah. Um, 
So, um, so well, that, I, didn't that know, was a, I, that, I didn't know if you guys were the only, the, I knew you were the first ones, but I didn't know if you were still the only ones doing that. But I guess it sounds like there's other people doing that too now. Oh, everybody does it now. Yeah, uh, no, every, everybody is, is printing components. Nobody's, um, you know, print, people are starting to print whole engines, but nothing's flowing, of course. Yeah. But, um, you know, people are printing a lot of components, um, you know, valves and injectors and bits sure. and pieces. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And the Rutherford engine also has that electric uh, mm. pump. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah, sure. Is that why it's called the electron, by the way? It is. Oh. Yep. Also, also, if you look at an electron um, electron diagram, it's it's quite nicely orbiting a you know a proton and that too. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so the when you distill out the engine, uh, what are the bits in an engine that makes it expensive and complex? And it's a turbo pump. It's mm. it's always a turbo pump. Um, so we kind of stood back and said, okay, well, how can we, how can we solve that, solve that really complex thermodynamic problem with some software? Um, and of course the electric turbo pump enables you to do that. Um, what's really, really cool is you have absolute complete control over mixture ratios and startup and shutdown. They're all software algorithms. They're not, they're not orifices or valves or things you have to change in the engine. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, when, when we first started, once again, uh, folks thought that was uh, ludicrous. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't achieve the performance out of those engines, uh, out of you know, battery-powered turbo pump, um, because you have to carry the batteries all the way to orbit and all these kinds of things. Um, but um, you know, we found very innovative ways to um, to prove that that was that was quite wrong. Yeah. And the, the the nice the nice thing about um, the electric turbo pump is you have a 98% energy conversion efficiency from the electrical power into into the hydraulic power. Um, whereas a gas generator is fifty percent, so you're already you're already on a winner there. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's an important technology that once again is, you know, we we don't want to build these really um, really difficult and, and finally you know individually tuned engines. Um, and you know the way we've decoupled it all is you know you can take any pump and put it on any thrust chamber and uh, load the software on and hot fire. Well, you mentioned the software, and I was going to ask you about that because, uh, again, looking through your your website, you talk about some of the, I guess, the avionics and the uh, the software component of it. Um, sounds like you guys are pretty innovative on that front as well. Yeah, I mean, we're fully fiber optic networked uh, launch vehicle. Um, all the all the the, the computers, um, you know, there's 15 computers all distributed throughout the launch vehicle, all networked with fiber. Mm -hmm. Um, and the reason why we did that is there's one computer that we just build lots and lots of. We don't have individual bespoke pieces of, um, of avionics. So you can take a, an engine computer and uh, upload the firmware and tell it that it's an engine computer. Then you can take another computer that does all the separation events and uh, all the pressurization events. And it's exactly the same computer and just load the firmware on and say, well, actually, you're not an engine computer. You're a, you're a, a stage set computer. And what that means is that we're just building lots of the same thing, which is really critical when you, you're trying to be manufacturing, trying to do manufacturing well. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't have all these different bespoke pieces of electronic equipment. You know, now we're ordering trays of FPGAs and trays of, of um, components and, you know, large numbers of circuit boards because it's just duplicated throughout the whole vehicle. Yeah. And, and all that is to make it so that you can launch within a 72-hour turnaround time, right? Yep. I mean, it's, it's all about gaining frequency to the domain. So it's all about um, launch frequency and being able to actually put stuff in orbit in a, you know, in a, in a high cadence. So, so you got the 72-hour turnaround goal, and then you have the $5 million price tag. 
Um, how far away from that are you right now with the with the price tag? Uh, well, I mean, the standard mission is actually 5.7, um, and oh. uh, yep. And look, we're we're you know we're, we're holding to that, and that is a you know that that's a, a very a basic kind of CubeSat mission where it's it's you know shovel and shoot. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know, as the missions get more complex and there's a lot more mission analysis required, then, then that price, um, you know, price goes up a little bit. But uh, no, we, we've been we've been we've been able to you know to hold to our hold to our obligations there, and and um, you know, the market has received it extremely well. Well, and this may have changed from the last article that I read, but it said that you had thirty. Clients already lined up. Is it more than that now? Oh yeah, it's very old. I mean, um, <laughs> this this year we're trying to get to a one a month launch cadence, and this this year there is just no space left. Um, you know, we've we've had to try and build more rockets this year, uh, you know, to accommodate what we've got. And then uh, next year we're trying to go to one every two weeks. Is the goal? Wow. Um, and uh, and you know, there's there's some space in that nineteen manifest, but there's not heaps of it. So um, you, you'll see a number of announcements. Um, in the coming weeks of, uh, yeah. of various launch customers that are that are coming on board but um, you know there's within this industry there's uh, you know there's a lot of people trying to do this um, and industry's just been really really uh, waiting for somebody to to bring the service to fruition and um, you know right now there's there's two two commercial private companies putting stuff on orbit and it's it's SpaceX and it's rocket lab yeah I, I really think that says a lot about I mean, like you just said, that the market's just been waiting for something like this. I mean, so so let me get this, make sure I'm straight here. So you did the, the first test, which was called It's a Test. Yep. And the second one was called Still Testing. Yep. And the third one is It's Business Time. Yep. Has that one launched yet? No, no, it's, uh, we'll be launching that um, pretty pretty soon. That'll be rolling out to the pad again pretty shortly. Do you have a date yet? Uh, we do. You're not going to tell me? No. <laughs> ah, thought I was going to get a scoop. No, yeah, no. Um, but it was originally scheduled for like April or something. And then yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we uh, saw it. We saw something weird on the ground that we wanted to check out. So we've given the team some chance to, to check it out and we're ready to roll it back out shortly. Okay. Well, I, I want to commend you on the name. It's business time as a Flight of the Concords fan. <laughs> yeah. I, I was very appreciative of that. Um, do you have a name for the next one after that? Are you going to name them all? It's almost like you could follow the trajectory or the the, the path of the business by the name of the, the rockets as they go along. Yeah, I mean... It's it's something we want to have a little bit of fun with. Sure. Um, yeah. you know, it's it, the, the industry is, has traditionally, um, you know, been government government dominated, and um, you know, I think I think it, it's 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 so hard to do that. Um, you know, it's good to have a little bit of fun with at least something. <laughs> so, um, let's say you get to your goals of every seventy two hours, or being able to turn around every seventy two hours. Um, so you're saying once a month this year, maybe once every two weeks next year. Yep. Um, maybe after that we're getting down to the every other day kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah, we just keep trying to double down as, as the market uh, supports it. Yeah, and this is this is the role that you want to play is just launching these these small sets up there. Is there is there anything beyond that in the future that you that you have eyes for? Well, I, I to be honest with you, I am contemplating on getting a tattoo across my forehead that says <laughs> I'm building a larger launch vehicle because um, it's You're probably being asked that. Yeah, it's it's. I'm, I'm, maybe I should just go get a recorder that I can pull out in my pocket and just play it. Yeah. Um, every time I ask the question, uh, look, the, the 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 most critical thing that we can do right now for this industry is provide a regular, reliable service to orbit, something that has never been done. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, that 
that is that is going to move the needle for the industry and quite frankly for um for, for for everyone down on earth more than anything else we can do mm. so so right now we're we're focused we're focused on that uh so in 10 years time let's say how much do you think or in what way do you want rocket lab to have you know kind of changed things in terms of like the kind of constellations we have out there and, and, and the way it's changed the life on, on earth. Well, I mean, I've got a shorter time horizon than that. I think in five years time, if, if we have been successful and uh, we've been able to um, you know, provide the service and liberate uh, our customers and um, give them the opportunities they need to do fantastic things in orbit, then um, the world will be a very different place. And I think this conversation be very different and um, it's probably going to be over a satellite internet constellation um, to start with and uh, I, I think I think um, that the scope for having impact is is just enormous yeah no, I totally agree in fact when you were saying earlier how much we rely on satellite technology even now I mean you're on the other side of the world from me and we're just having a conversation that's that's just amazing to me but um, I get a lot of crazy commenters in my, in my channel, as you can imagine. And of course, a lot of flat earthers and people who say that space doesn't exist and stuff. And I'm like, I'm like, do you realize you couldn't live the life you live if it wasn't for all the stuff that's up there doing what it yeah. does? Yeah. And so with, with that in mind, I'm thinking like, as, as rocket lab starts to really, you know, do its thing and, and we get more stuff up there. Like I, I'm having trouble imagining what kind of amazing things are going to be in the future with that. I look, and, and I agree. I, I've, I've, I've always said that the most incredible thing to happen in space is yet to happen because we haven't created an environment yet where uh, innovators can really innovate. And once, once you create that environment, um, look what happened. It did, just think of the internet, right? Um, started off basic communication, A to B, um, transference of files and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, you know, and if you said, said back then, well, there's going to be all these things and this massive industry that's built around it, you'd probably go, Oh, that sounds a bit crazy to me. Um, yeah. So it's, we're in this, we're in the same, same position with space is, is it, you know, this is, you know, we're about to open a domain for people to innovate and, and try new ideas. And, and I think, you know, I think the biggest, the biggest impact that will happen for us down on earth is, is, is yet to be thought of and certainly yet to be um, yet to be flown. Yeah. I, I almost find a corollary in like the Apple app store, like they created a platform that then other people were able to kind of innovate yeah. on and it became this whole thing. So you're kind of creating the space platform in a way that innovators can go and take and, and turn into things that are going to change the world. Yeah. And, and that, that, that's why we're so passionate about it and, and why we're not building a bigger rocket. Um, because it, 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 it's just so critical that, that if you can create that, that, um, that, that wonderful things are going to happen. But, but also um, with that becomes, comes some responsibility that, that, that we've kind of um, taken, a, taken a leading role on as well. And if, if you're going to place that amount of infrastructure in orbit, you need to do it sustainably. And mm. that's where low Earth orbit is, is very nice. But the way that we've developed the electron launch vehicle and our trajectories is, is very cognizant of that as well. For example, you know, we put our second stage into quite a highly elliptical orbit. So, um, you know, it dips right down in the atmosphere to around about 180 kilometers uh, in perigee. Um, and then we have a kick stage, which we separate off, which is a very small stage where we circularize the orbit and put the spacecraft where it needs to be. Mm. So what that means is what's done in the industry right now is you take your second stage 
you put it into that elliptical orbit and then you do a final circularization burn and you end up putting your whole second stage in orbit and then your little spacecrafts are on the top. Because you have to remember that one to two percent of the total rocket's mass is the spacecraft. So, you know, yeah. you're putting a lot of lot of stuff in orbit and, and that's not cool. So, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're going to populate um, space like this, you need to do it in a very responsible and sustainable way. So, you know, the whole way the Electron is designed is that, you know, a second stage deorbits very quickly because it's in a, in a very low perigee orbit. Uh -huh. So, and, and we don't use a second stage for doing a circularization burn. We use the kick stage and that okay. kick stage also has its own propulsion module. So after we've deployed the satellites, we can, we can have a good crack at deorbiting that as well. So we leave nothing behind other than the spacecraft, which nobody does right now. Um, yeah. But if you are going to launch at that frequency, um, I couldn't see any way to do it other than that to be responsible. To prevent space debris. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, for, 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 for every spacecraft, there's multiple pieces of rocket in yeah. orbit. So, um, you know, like I say, that's not cool. Yeah. Um, no, I thought the, the kick stage was really cool. And, and tell me if I'm wrong on this. Was it saying that... Um, like if you're, if you're launching multiple satellites, it can actually put them in multiple different yep. orbits because it can kind of like yep. just shoot up to the next one. Yep. That's yep. really cool. Yep. I mean, when we, we see a lot of missions that we have a mate when, you know, one primary spacecraft and a few CubeSats hanging off the side. And, um, you know, it's, it's great to be able to, you know, deploy the primary or deploy the CubeSats and do another burn and de deploy the primary or even just a, a mission that has a number of CubeSats, uh, you can burn deploy, burn, deploy, so you don't have to worry about any CCAM or any recontact or anything yeah. like that, rather than just sort of spewing them out in one big mess and crossing your fingers, um, you can actually, uh, you know, be very sensible about um, making sure you put the, the satellite into the orbit that, that they really want. That's really cool. Well, uh, I think I'm bumping up against the, the time limit here. I want to make sure I don't take up too much of your time. And I think it's your lunch break right now too. So you're probably, I'm keeping you away from a sandwich or something. Uh, but oh, is yeah. there any place that you, you want to send people if they want to find out more about Rocket Lab? Obviously there's the website. But, uh, yeah, I mean, please go to the, to the Rocket Lab website, um, you know, www.rocketlabusa.com. And uh, also, um, you know, all the, all the social media um, that, we, that we have, the Facebook page and Twitter. Um, yeah, this you know Twitter's a, a great great way to keep um, keep up to date with what's going on. Cool. Well, again, I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I'm I'm so excited about what you guys are doing, and hope I can make it down to New Zealand and watch a launch sometime. That'd be awesome. Yeah, no, that'd be great. You're most welcome. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to seeing its business time go up. Cool. All right. Day. Thanks. Thanks again, man. Yes. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Answers with Joe podcast. And again, a huge thanks to Peter Beck and his team at Rocket Lab for setting this up and making this possible. I really appreciate him sharing his time and wisdom with me. And, and it's, it's just great. I'm really excited about what these guys are doing and I look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, if you are interested in finding out more about the uh, Rocket Lab company and what they've got going on, again, their website is rocketlabusa.com. If you are finding this podcast and you don't know somehow that I have a YouTube channel, this is actually mostly a YouTube channel. You can find that on YouTube. Do a search for Answers with Joe on there. There's a video version of this where I talk about all kinds of Rocket Lab stuff, but I've also covered SpaceX, Blue Origin, uh, you name it, science, technology related. I talk about it. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play or any place where you get your podcasts. A good review is also helpful and fully appreciated. And with that, I will let you guys go on with your day. Have a good one, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.